Thanks for tuning in to Avenue Christian Church's podcast. Our hope for you is that you would find new life in Christ from wherever you're listening today. We pray that today's message encourages you to connect to, become like, and proclaim Jesus in your everyday. Now, let's dive in. Uh, so great uh, to be with you all here today. Um, again, my name is Johnny. I'm the children's director here at Avenue, and it's so great to be with you guys here today. Uh, it, I truly believe it's a gift from God that we can come here today uh, and study his word together. And so um, can, I can't believe Christmas was already almost a week ago. Uh, we could go tomorrow, and tomorrow we're going to be stepping into the new year. And I know many like to travel for the Christmas season, um, and, or with the new year on the horizon, our putting travel plans in place uh, for this new year. In fact, I, I do love to travel. Uh, when I was 15, uh, my family, we took a big family trip. We were going on a cruise. Uh, it was leaving out of a port in Miami. And uh, for our family of five, it made sense for us to, to drive down there. And so we had a Chevy Suburban and we all piled in and we were headed south. But as a new 15-year-old, I, I was so overly confident in my ability for us to, for my, hey, I'm going to jump behind the wheel. I'm going to drive us the entire way there. And I think for my family, they were like, oh, we're not going to do that. Um, and so my sister was seven, my older sister was 17 at the time, uh, a couple years of driving experience. She also wanted to take a turn driving. And so uh, we left in the early morning and uh, we, we headed south. Uh, my dad drove most of the trip. Uh, I think my sister took a turn and it was mid to late afternoon and we were in Southern Georgia and it was, we had pulled off on the highway and my dad was like, Hey, do you want to take a turn driving the car? And I was like, Oh, I'm in. <laughs> and so I jumped in the driver's seat, adjust the seat, adjust the mirrors and uh, buckle my seatbelt, start the engine, right? All right, we're ready to roll. I get onto the highway and this was my time to shine. I was going to show my family what a great driver I was. Now, you might think if I'm bringing up this story in front of everyone here today, uh, family and friends, and to those watching online, we thank you so much for tuning in. Um, you might think if I'm bringing up this story, there might have been some grandiose happening. Maybe like, you know, a car broken down on the side of the road, we pulled over, we helped them out. Uh, well, a lesson was learned that day, but unfortunately, it's not the kind of lesson a lot of us like to learn. I learned a lesson that day in humility. What I thought was going to be my four, five to six hour trip down to Miami turned into 30 minutes of cars flying by me, we, me white knuckling it and saying, all right, dad, I'm done. <laughs> it was a lesson in humility. And it was humiliating because I had hyped up what, a, what an amazing job I was going to do, you know. Today, as we conclude our series, Born is the King, we're going to be talking about Jesus, the lowly king. And we're going to be looking at Luke 2, 1 through 7, in which we read about the humble 90-mile journey of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And I think what we're going to see, that their story in many ways epitomizes humility, but what we're ultimately going to see is that this lowly birth of a baby in a manger is just a picture into the heart of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be talking about the lowly king and how a baby born in a manger teaches us humility. You know, I think we can oftentimes think about Jesus as Savior as we look at his redemptive work on the cross, and that is of the utmost importance. And it's true. Like, that's number, like, number one. But we also need to reflect on his kingship. And with that, what kind of kingdom Jesus came to build. And that's going to be our focus today, Jesus the lowly king. Um, you know, and I hope as we talk about humility and this lowly birth, that we see that humility and the need, that we, I hope we're going to see that humility is much more important and the need for it is so much greater than when 15-year-old Johnny is driving across southern Georgia. 
There are moments, times, and seasons in life in which we realize that what's going, around, going on around us is much more than what we can handle by ourselves. There are going to be hardships and things we don't understand. And sometimes, and I, I know this lesson all too well myself, to just, just to ask for help takes humility. I've been reminded time and time again this Christmas season uh, just what a fallen world we live in. You know, we praise God for the gifts he's given us, and it's true that we always have something to be thankful for, but you don't have to look very far to see the brokenness in the world around us. We live in an imperfect world where there's pain, physical ailments, loss, relational difficulty, and other hardships, and yet God did not leave us by ourselves. I don't know what's going on in your world right now or what your holiday season has looked like, but I do know this. Luke 2, 1 through 7, our passage for today, will teach us that God is with us. He is near to us, and he went to great lengths so that you and I could know him and have a relationship with him. And is that not the most wonderful news? That God loves us so much that he sent his son. That means even if we're on the highest mountaintop in life or in the deepest valley, we can draw near to God because he first drew near to us. We can love because he first loved us. Jesus is our ultimate source of life, comfort, and direction. So as we dive in today, um, I want to open us up with a word of prayer. So would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for creating this beautiful world and everything in it. We thank you that you've given us your word and that through your word we can know you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus as a baby to ultimately be the final payment for our sins. And that because of Jesus, we can have a relationship with you that lasts forever. Lord, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word today and that your words, which never change, would sink deep into our hearts and minds as we connect to you, become like you, and proclaim you in our lives. We pray that all this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. So yes, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, if you want to use a Bible in the seat backs, that's going to be on page 832. Uh, so like I had said, all through this Christmas series, we've been examining the events surrounding the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And I think we've looked at every single occurrence in the Bible about this moment, except for the moment right where it happens, right here in Luke chapter 2. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that here at Avenue, we teach from the Bible every week because we believe that God has primarily spoken to us through his word. And not only do we believe that his word is true, but that it's very applicable to our lives today. And so leading up for our text of the day, uh, we read about several key events, uh, but I quickly want to highlight something regarding the book of Luke specifically. And in order to do this, I'm gonna, this is something we do down in the kids' wing. If I'm setting up a Bible story and we're in the book of Luke, I might say, hey, all right, friends, you know... Um, who can tell me, is, is the book of Luke in the New Testament or the Old Testament? And usually everyone shouts out, it's in the New Testament. That's right, that's right. And we have a, we have a really bright bunch, and so we always want to raise the bar. And so I might ask, hey, um, who can tell me who wrote the book of Luke? Should be a softball. Who, who wrote it? Yeah, see, Luke, that's right, Luke wrote it. And that one gets fun if we're in a book like 1 Timothy. I might say, hey, who wrote 1 Timothy? And our eager bunch might yell, Timothy! But I'm like, no, no, it's Paul, you know. And that's really on me for setting him up for that. Um, and lastly, you might have heard it referred to as the gospel of Luke. And can I ask, can anybody tell me what the word gospel means? Does anybody know? The word gospel, what does it mean? Does anybody know? I heard some people hollering. Yes, that means, it means good news. There's four Gospels, they're the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're called the Gospels because they tell us the good news about who Jesus is, his birth, his life, his death, and ultimately his resurrection, defeating sin and death. 
And so, yeah, today we're in Luke's gospel. Luke was a non-Jewish doctor by trade. And he writes his gospel in a way that is unique to all the others. Uh, He wasn't even one of the original 12 apostles, but Luke wrote his gospel so that a high-ranking Roman official named Theophilus, you can read this in the opening verses of Luke, he wrote it so that he could know the truth of who Jesus is and respond to him as Lord and Savior. So our story picks up with Mary and Joseph in chapter 2, and we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 7. Again, if you're using a Bible in the seat back, that's page 832. Um, And before I read, I want to highlight three things we're going to learn today. First, that humility is modeled in the birth of Christ. Second, that humility is exemplified in the life of Christ. And finally, that true humility for us begins with recognizing our own need for a Savior. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the text. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word today. And so, in these opening three verses, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Luke is setting up some historical context for us. Caesar Augustus, one of the most powerful people in the known world at the time, issues a decree that a census should be taken. Uh, This is significant because when Luke records this, it gives us a a moment in history that we can pinpoint where uh, Mary and Joseph are, where they're traveling, and who's in charge. Um, And and, and moreover, that the the Roman Empire was powerful. Uh, And this this historical context is going to be our first clue as to the lowly birth of a king. The Roman Empire was one of the most powerful empires of its time. And when God was choosing to come into this world, he could have come destroying the entire Roman army and assuming leadership over this vast empire. He's God, he could have come in any way he wanted. And yet, he didn't come in that way. And I, I, I'm almost sure, too, that the, the, the Jews that were awaiting the promised Messiah almost would have expected that the coming Messiah would have done that. And yet, he didn't. The idea of an empire or royalty is not foreign to us, and nor was it foreign at the time. Uh, And yet Jesus chose to be born as a baby, a helpless, defenseless baby. And why? Because he is not a distant God. He's not a God that is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. He is a God that loves us so much, who desires a personal relationship with each of us. And he desires it so much that he entered the world in a lowly, humiliating yet relatable way. You know, over the summer, Rena and I became Aunt Rena and Uncle Johnny to baby Alex in the D.C. area. And if any of you guys have ever spent time around a baby or held a baby, you realize just how helpless and defenseless they are. They're totally dependent on mom or dad or whoever's taking care of them for their every need. And yet, this is the way the God of the universe chooses to enter the world, to draw near to us, to take on flesh like us. The lowly birth of a king starts with recognizing that God, the God of the universe, chose to take on flesh, and not just flesh, but to be be born as a baby. 
And we read on in verses four and five that Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. You know, here we read about where Joseph and Mary are from and where they're going. The town of Nazareth uh, in Jewish culture did, did not have the best reputation or connotation. In fact, this can be seen no clearer than in uh, John chapter 1, Jesus is calling his disciples, and uh, he called Philip, and Philip goes and tells uh, Nathaniel, hey, Nathaniel, we found uh, the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, right? The, the promised Messiah, the one who Moses wrote about in the law. And so uh, Philip is really excited about this, and he's telling Nathaniel, he's like, it's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And our, our second clue as to the lowly birth of a king can be seen in Nathaniel's reply. What Nathaniel says to Philip is, he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was a big clue into the Jews' low view of Nazareth, and really the entire region of Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? where Mary and Joseph were from. You see, Mary and Joseph, their geographic location was lowly. Uh, but we also read that he went there to register with Mary, who he had not yet married, and she was pregnant. For Joseph, this was problematic. And if it weren't for divine revelation from God, he probably would not have stayed engaged to Mary. In their religious culture, this would have put them low on the totem pole socially. In fact, it's possible that the news of this census could have been good news for Joseph because he's like, hey, this is an opportunity just for to, uh, to leave Nazareth, take the 90-mile journey south to Bethlehem and, while she's pregnant. Joseph and Mary are from a below-average town and face being ostracized socially in their religious culture. The birth of a lowly king did not incur under the most royal or even average family conditions. Lastly, in verse 6 and 7, we see the lowly, literal, physical location of Jesus' birth. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is it, the moment we've all been waiting for. Jesus is born. He enters the world. We read that while they were there, that being in Bethlehem, the time came for Jesus to be born. Bethlehem was at the time not considered a prestigious city by any means. Yet this was the location Jesus would have to be born in order to be the Messiah. The prophet Micah wrote 700 years uh, before this event that the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is of old, would be born in little old Bethlehem. And I share this because I don't want us to miss that the text is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. The entire Old Testament points to his coming. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. So we read that Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This all-famous passage might ring a little bit familiar in our ears, uh, but this is where we get to our final clue about the lowly birth of a king. Only it's probably, it might not be in the way we would expect. There are actually two things we're going to hone in on here, and that is the manger and the fact that there was no guest room available for them. And so we're going to start by looking at the word guest room and where this took place. 
See, I have up here on stage with me uh, a nativity scene. You guys all might be familiar with something like this, right? Maybe some of you guys have them in your homes or you see them set up. In fact, uh, we had an opportunity with our small group to head down to the Chris Kindle Market uh, in the city of Chicago, and they had a, a giant nativity scene set up. And it has all the usual elements, right? We have some wise men, uh, some shepherds. We have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And then, uh, of course, there's the animals and, the, and Jesus in the manger. And so when we look up at this, uh, we're gonna, I hope that when we see the nativity scene, it's going to remind us of the lowly birth of King Jesus. At the end of verse 7, it talks about Mary with baby Jesus. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This word, or, uh, this word inn, or elsewhere translated guest room, uh, comes from the Greek word katalima. Uh, Luke also uses this word elsewhere in his gospel to describe the upper room where the disciples received the Holy Spirit. However, it's not the same word that he uses in other chapters, uh, thinking namely of the Good Samaritan story, to describe an actual inn as you and I may know it. You see, this variation in word choice in Luke's gospel has led to several theories regarding the birthplace of Christ. Was he in a, a first century Jewish home? Was he in the back room with the animals? Because uh, in a first century Jewish home, it would have been common to bring the animals in at night to protect against the weather, uh, to protect against theft, and it would also provide some warmth on a cold winter's night. And so we, there, there's, uh, there's some thought about, like, was this in a first century Jewish home? Was this in a barn out back? Was this in the upstairs room? Was it in a cave? Regardless of where it happened, it's my hope that as we see baby Jesus laying in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals, we remember that Jesus came in a lowly way among the animals, uh, forgotten by everyone but his parents, regardless of where it happened. Because I want to hone in on this fact that he was born in a manger. Another thing to note from verse 6 and 7, because uh, we talked about where they were, but now I want to uh, hone in on this manger idea. Uh, in fact, if I asked all the kids, so I have up here on stage uh, what many of us would think of when we think of a manger, right? A feeding trough for animals. And if I had asked all the kids in here today to draw a picture of baby Jesus in a manger, I, I would be willing to bet that most of them would color the manger brown because they're like, oh, it's made of wood, you know? Well, in fact, first century feeding troughs were probably not made out of wood. In fact, uh, I have here up on the screen a picture of a first century feeding trough. They're almost always made out of stone. Wood was a valuable resource, and so they likely uh, made their mangers out of stone. In the Gospel of Luke, there's two instances in which Jesus is wrapped in garments like swaddling cloth. First, in Luke 2.7, we read, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. But then, and remember, this manger was cut out of the rock. And we read again, uh, secondly, in Luke chapter 23, verse 53. This is towards the end of the book of Luke. And after Jesus has been crucified on the cross, then he, Joseph, who was not Jesus' father, took it down, that being Jesus' body, off the cross. He wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. When Jesus is born, he's wrapped in cloth garment and placed in a stone trough. Then 33 years after his birth, he'd be wrapped in cloth again, but this time placed in a tomb. The lowly king whose first crib was a feeding trough was born to die for you and me. The gospel message, the good news that we celebrate each and every single day here at Avenue is that Jesus died for you and me. He paid the price for our sins so that we don't have to. 
Friends, today can be the day that you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And as we examine the birth of a lowly king and his humble birth, we have seen how humility and lowliness are modeled in the birth of Jesus. But as we look at his life, I think we're going to see how humility is exemplified in the life of Jesus. And I I don't think this could be more clear than in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. See, Paul wrote the book of Philippians to encourage the church in Philippi, his first church plant in Europe. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5, 11, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In encouraging the Philippians, Paul looks to Jesus, who stepped down from glory and took on flesh in the incarnation as the ultimate example of what true humility looks like. He was mocked, beaten, and left on a cross to die. There's no greater uh, example of humility than this. And friends, when we place our trust in Jesus, we have to look no further than Christ himself for the ultimate example of humility. You see, the very heart of Christ is gentle and lowly. Matthew records in his gospel, in uh, chapter 11, verse 29, uh, this is Jesus speaking. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's kind of a, some confusing verbiage, but I think Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, in which he hones on this verse in the heart of Christ, puts it best. He says, consider what Jesus is saying. A yoke is a heavy crossbar laid on oxen to force them to drag farming equipment through a field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid upon his disciples is a non-yoke. It's, it's a non-piece of farming equipment. It's not a burden on their shoulders. It is a yoke of kindness, Ortland says. It's like telling a drowning man to, he must put on the burden of a life preserver. It's kind of a funny image if you think about it, to be drowning and be throwing a life preserver and to call it a burden. But yet that's the irony that Jesus is using here when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus delights to meet us where we are and to give us his yoke of kindness that gives us peace, hope, love, and humility that the world cannot understand. You see, Jesus came to be ser- not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And through his lowly birth and because of his humble life, we can have confidence in the heart of God, knowing he is near to us. He understands us, and he loves us more than we could ever fathom. That leads me to my final point. Humility for us begins with recognizing our need for a savior. Our fundamental starting point to live with humility is to recognize that we all have sinned. You know, something we talk about in kids' ministry, if, we, if we're talking about sin, sin is anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. And I, and I know it's hard because in our culture today, it can be easy to think about, oh, I, I'm, I'm doing good, or I'm, I'm kind, or I give to the poor. But the reality is God's standard is perfection. And, and Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, we know that if, if we are guilty of even breaking one law, we're guilty of breaking them all. Thankfully, the story didn't end there. We know that, that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin are death. But here's the good news, friends, that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Jesus paid the price for our sins so we don't have to. And if you decided to trust in Jesus and make him Lord and Savior, King of your life, the all-powerful, almighty, yet lowly King, then we have to respond in obedience to his commands. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6 to Christians who are facing much persecution, uh, more than we could probably fathom it right in our present-day context. This was under Roman rule. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. In summary, God is not distant. He's not unable to know what we're going through. And as Kyle talked about last week at our Christmas Eve service, for God so loved the world, he gave. That's how much he loves us. He gave his one and only son. Humility was modeled in, uh, in Jesus' lowly birth in a manger. The king of the world took on flesh for you and me. And humility was exemplified in the life of Jesus. He was a perfect example of humility in that he gave himself up freely for you and me so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Humility for us is going to start with us recognizing our need for a savior and to place our trust in Jesus, the only way, the truth, and the life. You know, a lot of this can point to the fact that 15-year-old Johnny probably should not have been so overconfident in his driving abilities, especially with his family in the car. I had to ask for help when I couldn't finish the drive. And going into 2024, I want to encourage all of us that as we navigate life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that we would uh, continue to uh, seek God's word to guide and direct us consistently starting today and throughout the new year. There's a lot of ways we can practice humility. We can show humility today and in 2024 by learning to be quick to listen and slow, uh, slow to speak and slow to become angry because we can recognize that none of us are perfect. But most of all, I pray that humility for us would start each day with crying out to God and recognizing our daily dependence on him for all things. And as we wrap up service today, we're going to head into a time of communion where we remember Christ's work of salvation on the cross. When his blood was spilled and he paid the price for you and me to spend eternity with him. And, as we, uh, and, and in just a moment, Libby Kincannon will lead us in taking communion. But before we do, we're going to have a time to prepare our hearts for communion. If there's any unconfessed sin, something you want to bring before God, you can pray right now. He hears our thoughts. And we can go to God right now with what's on our hearts. Talk to him. He's accessible. He's lowly. He came down and was born in a manger for you and me. And we're going to be singing a new song uh, before we take communion called All Glory Be to Christ. And as we sing, I want want to encourage us to listen to the lyrics. Join the chorus and proclaim these lyrics. The song is about humbling ourselves before God as we remember his kingdom and that he is the one who modeled ultimate humility. And Jesus, he is the one who deserves all the glory. Hence, The title, All Glory Be to Christ the King. What a good word we just got to experience. If you have been impacted by what you have heard today and would like to know more about how to get involved here at Avenue, you can. Head to our website at avenuechristian.com. We believe that the good news of Jesus is the most viral message in the world. Be a part of the kingdom movement by subscribing and sharing this message on social media and with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening.